Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode marks the launch of our seven-episode series talking about games and education. One of the reasons I'm really excited about this series is that everyone has their own experiences with learning something from games. Either you've played a game that has imparted knowledge to you or encouraged you to think critically, or maybe you played an educational game in school and you have some memories of that. Everyone has some experience about the intersection between those two worlds. So I'm really excited to hear from experts on how games can empower education, since we all have a reference point to how games have affected our own lives in that area. And maybe you have an impression of what a game that teaches you something looks like, but I think that this series will radically shake up that image. To start out the series, I was honored to speak to James Paul G. He was one of the first academics to take games seriously as providing a model for what effective education looks like. Crack open any book about games and education, and I guarantee you will find Jim being referenced. He believes that our entire educational system should be overhauled and that it should be based around the problem-solving focus that video games naturally foster. I had a fantastic time listening to how he made these discoveries, and I think you will too. So without further ado, here is the interview. I'm here with Jim G. He is the Mary Lou Fulton Presidential Professor of Literacy Studies, and he's the author of Numerous books on literacy and education reform. Thanks for coming on the show, Jim. Thank you for having me. So where did you first encounter the idea that video games could provide inspiration or a model for education practices? Well, it was uh, late in life. I mean, I was 55 years old and I had a six-year-old child who was a boy. And, uh, you know, like it any parents read books to their kids. And I was aware there were digital things. And so, you know, I have like a Winnie the Pooh book, a digital book. And I would see in the children's sections video games. And so I brought home one day a video game called Pajama Sam, Who's Afraid of the Dark. And uh, I had never played a video game. uh, And I played it. And I was really kind of taken by how uh, entertaining and thoughtful the game was. It's not an education game. It's a game in which you solve kind of strategic problems for Sam. He's afraid of the dark, so he's gone into the land of darkness to get over his fears. And the whole bunch of very interesting puzzles he solved. And solving them together with your kid was fun and engaging. And uh, Sam loved it. And so uh, I went home and I said, you know, what would an adult video game be like? I have no idea. So I just went to the store and uh, got one arbitrarily. I mean, I got the New Adventures of the Time Machine, which is not a very well-known game. It's usually in remainder bins now. And uh, as 55, and could not believe how hard it was uh, and how long it was and how many times you failed. I just, and my first response was, people buy this? Why would it, this is a toy. Why would anybody want a toy that tortures you? 
And uh, but there was something that you know still kept me going through a lot of failure. I played it very badly, and uh, but I kept going. I kept going. I got motion sickness, you know, as you often do in a 3D game when you're new to it. And all of a sudden, I had this intuition that this is both the most frustrating thing I've done, but kind of the the only new learning I've done for 30 years, right? Because that's old people uh, we we get very good at something because we practiced it but we often don't learn new things so here i was you know learning a brand new thing with no advantage of prior knowledge and it both felt frustrating and felt good and i went on to do it and put in the hours and more and more began to see this technology represents what i know from research about modern learning and modern literacy better than what we do in school and I thought, that's really a paradox. Here you have this thing that's supposed to be popular entertainment. Uh, it's hard and it's long and people pay for it. It demands real learning, real commitment, real grit, persistence past failure. And yet we can't get kids to persist past failure for five minutes to do algebra or do stuff in schools. Why is this commercial product a better representative of modern learning theories than our schools? That was a paradox. Now, to be quite honest with you, uh, we academics, especially when we're tenured, uh, uh, as long as we write about stuff, we get rewarded. And I realize I'm going to play a lot of video games. I, to this day, play video games four to five hours a day. I better start writing about it so I can keep my job and keep my salary and I got to tell you, in the early days when I would go into my kids, you know, and the parents come in and say, what do you do? And I said, well, I get paid a very handsome salary to play video games. Every kid said, how do I get that job? Wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, that's something that's really interesting about games. Even though I've been playing games for a long time, sometimes when I see advertising for a new game, it surprises me because it will say something like, in bold letters, it says, you get the mine for resources. That's a that's a very difficult, challenging, like grueling thing in the real world to mine for resources, but right. it's a feature of a game. Yeah, exactly. And it is weird that we sign up for these things that they are sometimes barely indistinguishable from work. Right. You know, you're just doing similar repetitive tasks as a real job. You know, you just might be in a spacesuit or in a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting. Like you said, it's kind of a paradox. Well, think about this. You know, when World of Warcraft came along, World of Warcraft is patterned on what business would call a cross-functional team. That is a team of people, each of whom have a deep specialty, but have to know how to meld that specialty seamlessly with the other people's specialty. Most tech businesses, most good businesses are operating in terms of cross-functional teams. They're very high stress, but they're very productive. So you get some of these young people in a tech company uh, stressed out all, all day over their cross-functional teams and go home to World of Warcraft to play it hundreds of hours as a cross-functional team and enjoy the hell out of it, right? Still high stress. It's a guild. They want to perform. Mm -hmm. You have to get good at it, and it's fun. So the games created a context which brought out of humans the pleasure of learning, even the pleasure of low-level stress, right? You know, frustration is good for you at low levels. In fact, if you don't have stress at low levels, you can't develop. If you have stress at very hmm. high levels, you get killed. But uh, the uh, people flourish on uh, predictable levels of stress where they can overcome them. Well. They literally flourish. 
Games are what I call pleasantly frustrating. And that's a state humans love. Hmm. That's interesting. And you mentioned cross-functional teams. Can you go a little bit more into that? Why cross-functional teams are such a big part of today's workforce? Yes, it's a, they're, they're a big part. They became a big part of the workforce back when we realized that companies had to be a lot faster to the market, a lot more innovative, a lot more efficient. And the idea that you have one specialist do part of the job and then pass it to the next one, like, you know, the design guy designs, you pass it to the builder, then you pass it to the salesperson, then you pass it to the distributor, is too slow. Furthermore, very often, all of those people have knowledge about the, this enterprise, but they're not sharing it. So people just simply had the idea, let's put the designer, the marketer, the sales guy, the distributor, all together in a team, have the thing all done at once, have them all share that knowledge, demand that they're very good. If you're the sales guy, you better be damn good at sales, just as if you're the priest, the healer in that dungeon, you better be damn good at it. On the other hand, you better understand what the designer does, the distributor does, the salesperson does, so that you can integrate with them and get on the team with them and get it done. So this was a response to the modern global economy, that we had to be quicker, faster, leaner, and meaner. Uh, and it's high stress in the sense that, you know, you, you're all of a sudden, you broke the individualist concept that you can be a narrow engineer paid for your genius. You know, today, engineering occupation that used to be considered quite asocial, they're almost all on teams. And engineering education is the form of education that has reformed the most because they now know that engineers have got to talk to tech people, talk to salespeople, talk to designers, talk to the other people. And they're on these teams with them. So it's the modern form of work. Now, in the current age, there's another reason for it. Uh, we now face so many complex problems in the world uh, from complex systems in the technical sense, systems that are so complex they cannot be understood from any one degree of expertise. Experts, mm -hmm. people who know a lot about one thing, are dangerous. You think about the economy when we collapsed it in 2008. Alan Greenspan recommended that people give up their fixed mortgages and get balloon mortgages. Disastrous advice from the world's leading economist. Why? He knew everything about economics, but the problem of the economy is not just economics. It's a very complex issue. It's global, cultural, social, economic. And so uh, to understand these things, you still have to be an expert, but you can't be an expert who can't talk to other experts. You, because you've got to mm -hmm. pull those expertise to deal with true complexity. And uh, so that uh, suggests that uh, not, not just cross-functional teams, it suggests the importance of what people have called collective intelligence, pulling diversity of viewpoints uh, and expertise to integrate them to deal with problems that cannot be solved by any one type of expertise. Wow, that's really fascinating. and. I saw a talk where you spoke about affinity spaces. What is an affinity space and how does it apply to okay. the educational value of a video game? Well, you see, so interesting enough, when I started this, I played the games as a single player, right? I had Constance, you know, I wanted her to take it off in the multiplayer, but I, I played, I, I have played multiplayer and I enjoy it, but not, I don't have the passion for it many young people have. So I tended to stress the way a game itself is well designed to get learned, right? It orders the problems, it motivates, it, it, it sees failure as a form of learning and not a form of failure. Um, you know, it gives information just in time and on demand and a whole bunch of other learning principles. Uh, only later 
did I come to see that there's another aspect of gaming that is very modern for education. And that's what I call these affinity spaces. And here's what it is. Imagine you're going to play Dota 2, right? Game where there's hundreds of characters. You've got to spec them. You've got to be in teams. You've got to understand very well what you're doing. And you get it really interested. You can go to a myriad of internet sites. Some will have tutorials. Some will have coaches. Some will let you mod. Some will have discussions and strategies. Some are theory crafting sites, right? All of those sites uh, around the game, they're the things that the people that get a passion for it are driven out into where they can review and mod and learn and coach and make tutorials, get spec guides, do all sorts of things. That takes the game much further. And it's an actual modern form of organization. And it's an affinity space in the sense that you've got an affinity for Dota 2. You've got a thing for Dota 2. And now you're going to go into all these spaces, like a theory crafting space, and you're going to go in there to bond to people, not because you're black or white or old or young or woman or man or abled or disabled, but because you have a Dota 2 affinity. And if it's, you know, if there's no video and voice, they don't even know what your race, class, and gender is. And they don't want you there if you don't have a Dota affinity. And in that Dota affinity, you are going to solve problems, make stuff, design new things, get involved in discussion. You able, you'll build new sites. And in that, that takes the learning of the game into the whole maker movement, into the whole science of productivity. Now, this is such a modern form of organization that you could not find a topic. Uh, that did not have a, a set of affinity spaces, that is, many, many spaces, some in the real world, some in the world, where people go because they have an initial interest and eventually a passion for that affinity, that topic, that theme, that endeavor, whether it's women's health, citizen science, uh, 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 citizen news, you know, but there is tremendous amount of physics sites built around Portal. You know uh, the game Fold It that helps scientists learn the protein, discovered the fo correct fold for the protein that causes AIDS that had eluded scientists for 20 years. Not just because they played the game and got the answer, but they formed a guild and they shared knowledge and they built in each other's structure and they built tutorials, but now they're out in the affinity space. And they go back into the game and they discover what science couldn't discover. So you see, I had missed in the beginning the power of this new set of spaces that people travel through to make and do and be because they have an affinity for a problem. And games did this in the beginning the best. They gave us the way to look at this. You can make it around any problem, but of course the game delivers a problem space to get you hooked. And then a certain percentage of people get out into the modding community, the other communities, and get very skilled. Uh, for example, I've written a lot about young girls doing uh, fan fiction writing out of The Sims, where you essentially graphic novels from The Sims on vampire romance fiction. And they have thousands of readers and they're expert writers and they have websites to maintain their audience. That was never possible in my lifetime. You, you can be a adulated writer at 15 with a big audience because you played The Sims, but you didn't just play The Sims. You took it further into a set of social organizations that meant where people were there because of the affinity, not because of race, class or gender per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then these spaces provide uh, a path for people to learn all those skills about communication and right. self-motivation, all sorts of things exactly. that it takes to create a project. So we have one little girl we studied who started with the Sims, 
went into doing, uh, uh, you know, kind of making on her own site of clothes and stuff. And then her, her teenage peers uh, contracted her to make clothes for their kids and to make stuff. They didn't want to buy them in the game. They wanted her to originally make them. That led her to uh, learn Adobe Photoshop. Then she got interested in Adobe Photoshop. Then she went to Second Life and built in her own store and sold her stuff for money. And now she's a graphic design artist for um, a game company. She wasn't hmm. any good at school. Wow. Notice how the skills had legs. You were led from The Sims to modding, to Adobe, to design, to entrepreneurialism. Then you go get some good courses in graphic design, and all of a sudden you're a pro. Hmm. Yeah, you might even say right now we're in an affinity space because I started this mm -hmm. uh, as someone who knew nothing about podcasting or audio production, communications, anything. But I really loved games. I loved what people were writing about games. So to me, what you did is you created a room in the larger affinities. Affinity space is like space. You know, like there can be cities and towns inside a state and states inside a country. Mm -hmm. You are town now in the gaming affinity space. You built your own little town. And it will have power if people can get from other places to here and then get from here to other places. Mm -hmm. And if they do, it'll be that your little town will be more and more powerful. And you are contributing to the much larger goal. And you, of course, by that link, your little town can have much more power than it could ever had before the age of the internet. Right. So in talking about how games, you mentioned before how games teach you through failure and build up resilience to failure, and they yeah. they provide a, a good flow of information. Yeah. Is there a genre or a type of video game that you think is particularly effective or particularly interesting when you're thinking about how to apply those principles or demonstrate those principles for education reform? No. I mean, there, the, the thing is I make, and this has been misunderstood because I was making the claim that good games are good for learning. A bunch of people have tested bad games and found they don't learn to learning. And I point out, well, no one ever made a claim that bad games are good for learning. Hmm. So we have to come clean about what a good game is. And much of the games that are going to school today are not good games. And the heart and soul of a game is that it's an interesting set of problems to solve. And it doesn't matter. Chibi Robot's about cleaning a house when you're four inches tall. Portal is about going through portals, uh, you know, uh, how it relates to solving the problem. That's the heart and soul of a good game. Every gamer knows that this game mechanic should have great power to facilitate my problem solving. And if the game mechanic does not fit well with the problems, does not facilitate solving them, the problems are not interesting, you have not got a good game. Now that match between a good game mechanic, Portal could is a great example. The game mechanic of making those portals and how they work is perfectly melded to the physical problems you're solving, right? They, mm -hmm. They're married. And that gives you a great sense of power, great sense of learning and achievement. That match, what I learned now, having spent a long time uh, in game design work, not myself, facilitating other people who have talent to do it, not me, uh, that uh, that match is not an algorithm. That's an art. Only really good games. So when you played games where you felt, wow, this mechanic really works, it really is powerful, as in Minecraft or Portal or in Civilization, I mean, you feel, wow, I'm getting a lot. They're letting me set me up with what I do. And how I do it in this computer is really working to solve problems and make me think. Then you really get a lot of joy, both intellectually and emotionally, out of that game. 
And that, I, you know, I, when we make games, when educators try to get involved, or they were didactic, uh, you solve math problems, but you get then the game mechanic is picking up milk bottles. If you pick 100 of them, you get to do a math. You know, it's bullshit. The, you know, so if, if you, I don't know if you play Dragon Box, the algebra game that made in the Netherlands. I've that, heard of it. It's fabulous. So you will never see a game with a better game mechanic for solving equations. It is so good that it takes, you do not see an algebraic symbol until the middle of the game and you've been solving equations and only in the middle of the game do you realize you thought you knew no algebra and you've just solved a bunch of algebraic equations and now they put them into algebraic language and you have no trouble solving them and you were entertained to death doing it but the mechanic how they set up the solution of the problems using images first is brilliant see now um that's that compare that to a game where I saw if I get the answer right, I get to spend a few minutes picking up milk cans to get points. What does the milk cans have to do with math? Right? So anyway, that's an art. You know, it takes, you know, it takes fabulous talent. See, I, I you know, think of just meditating how brilliant plants and zombies is. How simple. You look plant zombies. Pretty soon, it's moving fast. You're almost engaged in real-time strategy thinking on the fly. That's hmm. not, that's not just science; it's art. And uh, one of the troubles is we tried to bring these to school, is that they get made by educators that make them look like skill and drill. But, you know, but, you know, it's just a spippy way to fill out drill sheets. So, uh, it, but you know, bringing really powerful games is great, but you need good game designers. Hmm. It's interesting to me that what makes a good game also makes it good for education. Yes. This may not really be a question with an answer, but how did it come about that video game designers stumbled across these techniques? Well, let me tell you an interesting story of how I found out the answer to that question. So when I was doing this, remember I told you I was sitting there writing this book, enjoying the hell out of writing it playing games all the time, but I had no connection to the game industry, right? None, zero, nada. And uh, so I had a Walter Mitty fantasy that I would get a call from GDC to be asked to give a talk, right? This was truly Walter Mitty. It was never going to happen. But all of a sudden, just as the book was about to come out, Wired Magazine found out a book was coming out. The topic seemed sexy. They asked me to write a very small article about the book. And I wrote it, and then they rewrote it. They really knew how to write for that audience. And so the only words left of what I wrote were the and who. And they wrote the rest of it. And it, it's actually in several books about how to write well. It's an exemplary piece mm-hmm. of writing with my name on it when it wasn't written by me, but by these editors. You know, took my ideas, but really wrote them in a way that were compelling. That article did well and it's just a little tiny piece and then i got a call from gdc to give a talk and i had my little and i didn't and i my first time been there many other times now but uh when i went there i brought an overhead projector i mean i brought uh, slides for the overhead projector not slides the over, you don't even remember them probably overhead <laughs> and i'm in a room and i'm giving this in my academic i'm giving this talk i got my principles and the uh first and the uh, first question was uh, to uh, the organizer of the session, where did you find that uh, overhead projector? And uh, the guy <laughs> said, I found it down in the basement next to the Ark of the Covenant. 
And uh, so, and the next question was from Eric Zimmerman, who's since become a good friend, but a very creative game designer and a leading person at GDC. Uh, he said, look, you've given all these principles that you claim are in games, but are also supported by learning research. But, you know, the, a lot of the game designers you've talked about are actually here in the room. So why don't we just turn around and ask them if these principles are in their games? And he turned around mm -hmm. to Warren Spector and said, Warren, are these in your games? Now, you know the end of the story, because had he said no, we wouldn't be having this podcast. <laughs> he said yes, and he says some of them we know, because we actually do study some of the stuff, and some of them we don't, but we've discovered them on our own. Now, I argue, uh, I mean, that's the answer, but the, the other thing that I, is some of it's Darwinian. So, look, what hit me in the very beginning, you're going to sell a product. This is changing, because now games are more mass. They want a mass, you know, games didn't have in 2003 a mass audience. They made more money than movies only because they were more, much more expensive. They were a niche audience, and now they want a really mass audience. And that means, to a certain extent, the games get easier. But uh, at those times, they were hard. And in fact, if they weren't hard uh, or if they were too short, they, the reviews were terrible, right? You'd always see reviews, game's too easy or it's too short. So they have a thing that's got to be long and hard. They have no choice because their consumer base will not accept any other product. Now, if you're going to make something that's going to be long and hard and nobody can learn to play it, you're going to go broke. So what's going to happen? In Darwinian terms, companies are going to learn how is the best way to keep somebody in the box for something that's long and hard. Otherwise, they're broke. All the bad. See, have you ever thought about how perfect the interface is for real-time strategy games? Right, whether it's Rise of Nations, it's all the same, right? Basically, if you've played any real-time strategy game, uh, a modern one, you already know a lot of the commands. You certainly know a tremendous amount of how the interface will work because that interface is virtually perfect for what you have to do, but it was discovered Darwinianly. Every one that was worse is dead, and every new innovation that worked got put in there. So some of it is uh, Darwinian. And, but, you know, I was also struck as I went back to GDC. I hope there's no game designers listening to this. But I was impressed by how um, game designers are not, they, they kind of look down on academics as uninteresting nerds. But they, when you see young game designers give talks at GDC, they are the most theoretical academic talks I've ever been to. They're all theoreticians. I've heard whole lectures in structuralism at GDC. So they think that academics are counting the angels in the head of a pen, but they're all uh, frustrated theoreticians. And they're very smart people. So, I mean, for example, I don't think anybody talks about learning better than Will Wright. If you if you want to know how does a really good game designer talk about learning, just go to YouTube and listen to Will Wright. Uh, Warren Spector's was, all, you know, was in a PhD program all the way to his, except for writing his thesis. So many of the game designers are very, very smart people who actually want to think in very theoretical ways, uh, and they associate it in academics with uh, boredom, but they don't associate when they're going to give you the theory of real-time strategy with it. So uh, GDC is uh, is like a set of lectures that are sometimes very. Uh, theoretical and abstract, but with great passion. And of course, they are connected to the learning, the people that they're talking about, the learning of how they create 
uh, interactions between a machine and a person that are life enhancing. And that knowledge has led them to know a lot of interesting things. A lot of things I've seen that are critiques or, you know, just explanations of the design of a game. A lot of it revolves around this is how the game designer taught the player how to get from not knowing anything about the game, about the world, and then slowly introducing things in such a way that not only do they teach the player what they need to know, but keep them engaged along the way. And even going so far as to teach them in such a way that they make the player feel smart and feel accomplished. Yeah. You know, I've never, I I remember, I remember forever going to GDC and hearing a whole team of uh, Japanese game designers connected to Zelda, people that have been in the designing in the Zelda game, some of the lead designers. And they gave a presentation in the most specific details of how, of things like how they had learned the timing between when you solve a problem and that characteristic Zelda little sound goes off. And it just, and they said, we, it's got to be just right because if it comes too soon, it'll take away your sense of achievement. If it comes too late, you won't feel rewarded. This is full of intricate thinking about reactions that, that if we thought that deeply about how we do learning in school, we'd all have geniuses in school. So, the, you know, the designers are sitting around thinking, how does this machine empower you as a learner it's not only they want to teach you how to play the game they want to teach you how to think in a certain way they want to they want to encourage you why don't you try to explore different ways to solve the problem why don't you begin to learn to take risks why don't you begin to realize that that failure is the most important form of giving you feedback about the progress you're making it they, they really are you know i used to argue that you know, there are early studies of primate learning, were primates, that show that primates do not need rewards like food rewards to learn. That learning is inherently satisfying and pleasurable to primates, right? Built into us, the drive for sex and the drive for learning are equally pleasurable, equally strong. Schools killed the drive for learning. And if we had taught sex, they would have killed the drive for sex. Games have allowed people to rediscover that we are biologically programmed to enjoy learning, and especially learning socially. Hmm. So I guess that leads into what are some of the steps? I mean, I guess you've written multiple books about this, but what are the steps of taking those lessons that lessons we learned from video games and apply them to our classrooms? What are what are some of the first steps? Well, so this is so uh, this is going on as we speak, and there's two different uh, approaches to this, uh, two different, and there's two different value systems. And so there's one value system that is uh, the idea is let's take uh, what we've learned about games and make games for school, but not demand the school changes very much. Right? We, we can't change the paradigm of school, so um, we'll we'll accommodate the game to the school. And what happens is, in my view, is the school's grammar, it, the way we do school captures the game and milks out of it all its good features. The second approach, which is the one I want to take, is that powerful forms of learning like games, especially when tied to affinity space, 
cannot go to school in their powerful form unless we change the paradigm of school, right? Otherwise, they will just simply be neutered. And this, you know, the textbook companies, the politicians, the entrepreneurs, the business people, they like the first theory because it's easy. Just sell the product. Don't, don't muddy the water because the money's on the way. And the paradigm change with uh, uh, hacking that could take the whole system down, right? We're, we're, we're in existential problems, uh, at, but that solve problems. We have a whole school system that is not based on solving problems. We only have a game industry based on solving problems, but we have a world replete with problems. Now, the other thing that is already happening, the form of learning I advocate, which is problem solving that has the learning principles of games, whether or not the problem solving is in a game, but then has the legs out into an affinity space to become a maker, a modder, a reflector, a producer, mm-hmm. as in these affinity spaces. That means we've got to cross and walk out of the school into the world, right? Into the world of the internet and the physical world. And so the learning system built in these affinity spaces, like Folded, or in many of the games, Dota 2, or many, many, many of the game spaces, theory crafting for World of Warcraft, they already exemplify the paradigm of education I want. They're just not school, mm-hmm. right? They already do it. And the reason we can't do it in school is not only is it very difficult to bring a problem-solving thing that has the same learning principles of creativity and freedom and choice and, uh, and uh, depth into school when we're doing skill and drill and accountability and testing. But uh, the idea of then that problem space going into affinity spaces would require the school to let you get on the internet. <laughs> They don't like that, right? Matter of fact, most schools ban anything with the word game in it. Hmm. So now think about this. Henry Jenkins, a tremendous uh, scholar of uh, literacy communication, media communication, and games, uh, used to be at MIT as at USC now, probably the best-known guy in media communication. He made, when he was at MIT, a beautiful, highly interactive digital version of Moby Dick, right? You could interact with it almost like you were in the world. You could annotate it, do it. Just really, you know, it was lovely, lovely thing. Never got into schools. You know why? Anything with the word Dickin in its band. So here we have a schools that ban one of the greatest pieces of literature written because it has the word Dick in it hmm. and therefore couldn't take this product, right? That means they can't get on the internet they, and you can't get out of the classroom into a garden, into a pond the world is in affinity spaces now, and they can be global. You, you know, you could be in there studying algebra with a kid in Japan, and you could be doing it out of school in, in Dragon Box or in anything else, even in the real world. So school's a little hut that people are locked in now with a bunch of entrepreneurial people that want to keep the hut closed but with just shinier products. And I want to blow the hut up. Wow. I've seen that there are some commercial games that have started to be implemented into schools with, you know, minor variations right. like Minecraft, I know, has uh, started to be introduced. Sure. Yeah. Portal has been used in school. Civilization has been used in school. You know, of course, uh, SimCity was always even used in school for decades. But you know what they used to do in SimCity is was just what you did at the periphery of the day when you were finished with your work or you're waiting for the next task. You might be able to play SimCity for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. It was deeper than anything you were going to do in school. Hmm. It was per- the periphery of school. Yes, there, you know, the, I was part of a project called iCivics, mm-hmm. which teaches civics, 
through games, but not just games. It then builds a whole set of social relationships and interactions and curriculum around the game. Don't just use the game. The game's part of the bigger package, which we want. And uh, a company called Filament has made those games. It's a company I helped start with two of the people who run it are my students, but I have no financial stake in it, so I have no conflict of interest here. And uh, that had that those games and the it was a this is the brainchild of former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. It was her idea, and she was the lead of lead of the company. And uh, there, sixty percent of all social studies teachers in the country use those games. And they've had millions upon millions to play. By the way, if you're interested in more about iCivics, Season 2, Episode 14 of this show is all about it. The link is in the show notes. This can be done, but notice we could only do it in an area where they didn't test. Hmm. Right? You've got, in the areas they test, math, literacy, and science, then you have to scale and drill for the test, right? You right. have to dumb people so they can pass the test. Hmm. So I guess you don't have a favorable view of current standardized testing. No, but even if you liked them, you have to ask, what knowledge do you want so we can survive? And I don't think in an age where uh, recalling facts that can be looked up on the internet is the test of your intelligence, but not your ability to solve problems, we're going to survive as a species. We test recall. You know, by the way, there's an even deeper paradox. Uh, human memory is much more future-oriented than past one. You know, courtroom testimony based on memory is usually wrong. <laughs> we are, we are, humans are very poor at having a memory that's a true record of the past. And the reason for that is every time you use a memory to think about the future, to prepare for the future, to make sense of the world, you change the memory when you store it. So by the time you're in court, it's worthless as a political court because the purpose of human memory is to take everything you've learned and all the experiences and all the patterns you've found in the past to prepare for intelligent, safe action in the future, to run scenarios in your mind, to make simulations, to play video games in your mind, role-playing what might happen before you do it. So that's an evolutionary thing. We don't have memory in the way a computer does. Our memory is for preparing for the future. And that is so that we can make good choices. And yet we school is about memory as recall, but it has nothing to teach you how to make good choices about your future. Hmm. If we educated any other species in schools, whether it was donkeys or pigs, they would become stupid. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because games do involve a lot of learning of things, but not in the form of recall it's right you know it's about learning skills and patterns. how good would it you work at nasa how good would you want a scientist who can recall all the physics of space flight but can't get a spaceship up in the air yeah that kind of knowledge is just the knowledge itself is basically meaningless yes as an engineer you use facts yes right you use facts as tools you use them as tools to do stuff. And and then, and you learned them because when you were doing stuff, you used the fact as a tool. If school used facts just to recall them on tests. Hmm. Does, no, by the way, literature since the 70s shows that if you teach a bunch of facts, they don't, uh, students will pass the test on them, but they don't correlate being able to solve problems. You can write down Newton's laws of motion. 
And there's even problems that you could logically deduce the answer from Newton's laws of motions. And still the people who can pass the test on Newton's laws of motion can't solve the problem. Hmm. There's no correlation between knowing facts and solving problems. However, if people can solve problems in physics, they know a lot of facts. So if you teach for problem solving, you get both facts and problem solving. If you teach for facts, you get nothing but facts. Hmm. If, if that means if you're paying for schools, it's a taxpayer, you should ask for your money back. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that kind of reminds me of games too, because even games I haven't played in a long time in an MMO, I can still recall, you know, the powers that I used and sure. the logic behind the order that I used them and vaguely what they do, you know, years later. Sure. But you notice you're drawing a knowledge of the past now because you're in a present that you want to think before you act mm -hmm. or something new you're using that past knowledge to have a better present and future you're not using it to recall it to get rewards hmm. right all right um is there anything you want to tell listeners about that you're working on and how people can find you uh well i don't want them to find me now i mean, <laughs> I mean i'll tell you just one thing that i and i this is a sad thing to admit but you know because games are so so popular I get every day dozens of emails from high school kids and grammar school kids uh, whose teachers have told them to do a report and interview somebody, and they all choose games, and they all want me to answer 20 questions by Tuesday. <laughs> it's so popular now, you know. Yeah, they're mainstream now, so that means we have to, though, as they're mainstream, not let that mean we curtail their power. Hmm. That we norm them and can make them confirmatory to our standard ways rather we let their power change us otherwise and you know people always ask are games good or bad the answer to that for any technology is both i mean you they can be used for good they can be used for bad or they can be used for trivia they hmm. and any powerful technology could certainly be used to do evil so our job is to do good with them right so uh good luck with the podcast and um uh, People can uh, hear me on YouTube all over, all sorts of things, uh, if they would like. I'm very easy to read, actually, if they want to. If they can use Google, they can reach me. All right. All right? All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you much. Goodbye. A big thanks to Jim G for coming on the show. His story is a real testament to the power of games and what happens when people keep an open mind to them. He went from having no experience with games to being one of the greatest advocates for the potential of games to make the world a better place. His work has been the basis for so many others to revolutionize education. And much of what we discussed here will be recurring themes as I talk to others who have integrated games into their own classrooms. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. Tune in next week because we're going to be talking with Scott Nicholson about his methods for making incredible educational games and even educational escape rooms. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any episodes and you're not going to want to miss the rest of this series. Join the community discussion on the official Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server. You can find that at discord.gg slash plus 7. That's discord.gg slash plus numeral 7. 
and you can follow the show on Twitter at 7 underscore intelligence. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 7. Universe.